Project A Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Project A Podcast. Today I have Leo here with me. Leo is my dear colleague out of the investment team, one of our investment managers. And the idea for today is that we obviously explore a little of his background, but also figure out what he is excited about, what he's interested in. And hopefully he's going to explain a little how you can grab his attention and uh, potentially score investment from Project A. So Leo, great to have you on the show. Um, maybe if you don't mind, a quick personal background uh, for our listeners to learn a little bit about yourself, that would be fantastic. Uh, yes, of course. Um, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me and hosting this, Uwe. Yeah, so basically I'm, I'm Leo. I'm uh, in the team uh, working together with Uwe um, since about three years, um, basically joined, uh, joined out of university, joined initially as, a, as an intern and worked my way up um, to being investment manager, which is, yeah, which is a job that I um, thoroughly in, enjoy working together with, with an amazing team and yeah, amazing founders. Um, in terms of my personal background, originally studied economics and um, yeah, banking and finance, which is, uh, I guess, a very kind of quantitative finance masters. Um, so didn't study um, something, um, something technical myself, but here at Project A and the team, I yeah, came to look at a lot of very technical things within uh, B2B software, a lot around developer tooling, uh, data infrastructure, commercial open source, or everything that's a bit more um, juicy on the technical side. Yeah, I think some funds or yeah, some people also like to call it broadly uh, deep tech. Um, I think that's a bit of an overstretched buzzword, but but you could probably also... Um, yeah, also use it there. Obviously, we're very proud of that story to have, you know, one of our former interns now rising through the ranks and uh, playing an integral part in in making uh, everything happen here at Project A, which, of course, also in large part is getting a good understanding about very complex business models and then figuring out, like, what should our investment hypothesis be and then also getting those deals done. Um, yeah, we're, we're proud of that, of course, and, and very lucky to have you. Um, how did you end up with that topic, right? So you, you hinted at it with, with your quantitative background, probably a good indication that, you know, uh, you, you're open to intellectual challenges, but then how did you go from there into technology in general and then specifically into the DevOps, the data field, open source, uh, and, you know, the, the, the deep tech side of things here at Project A? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was a couple of different reasons or drivers behind it. Originally, that was actually a bit of my leeway into joining Project A in a venture capital fund um, in the first place. And um, yeah, that, that was basically the the, crypt, the crazy world of crypto um, and the ICO and pre-sale hype of, of 2017, 2018. Yeah, so I basically interned at, at Upvest. So, so shout out to, to Martin, um, Jesper and, and Ivan, the team at, at Upvest. Which where we yeah we're basically trying to broker um, crypto protocols and I don't know if if anyone remembers the, the, that crazy summer um, where any company could basically um, yeah raise raise funding on a on a white paper and on and an idea of a of a crypto project and yeah I mean as as probably most listeners know um, the market went south in the meantime but. Um, when I was there, it was basically my job um, to due diligence crypto projects in a very similar way as a um, VC diligences um, startup investments. Yeah, that was when I basically, that, that was summer 2018, when I basically dove into, into smart contracts, um, consensus protocols, and kind of all the technological beauty, I would say, of, of cryptocurrencies and the allergens. And yeah, 
really enjoyed. I mean, it was also obviously a very software and infrastructure heavy company because we were at the same time building infrastructure to actually send those tokens and, and not only to sell them. And yeah, I, I learned a lot about how, how you develop software and I mean, from, from the sidelines, basically. But yeah, soon after that, I, I, I basically joined Project A and was just very interested from the beginning on um, topics that are a bit uh, deeper and more complex on the technical side. And especially, especially these yeah, learnings um, from learning from great founders, learning from also our operational experts on how all these things get together and, and diving into um, a new world. That was something um, that I just thoroughly enjoyed and um, assessing these business models. I mean, I think on the other hand, of course, I guess it's also just a very exciting, um, exciting market. And I think it's a very good industry um, to place to place bets in just because the outcomes are, are typically fairly large um, and and also I would say they're at least on the more generalist side of, of funds um, there, there are some um, some funds and uh, I mean that focus less on these kind of very technical topics because it's just a bit yeah just a bit more difficult to get into it and um, I would def I definitely think there are, in a sense, underinvested um, relative to other companies, and that's my my old um, intuition as an as an economist. Basically, says that you should then probably focus on on those things where there's uh, a bit less relative competition. And if if, if you don't mind me uh, focusing on that point a little, and while we're on the topic, so what's the current state of crypto? What what does the economist say? Like uh, you know, the, the crazy ICO summer is over now. It seems like we're in the age of DeFi and NFT. Is it a good time for us to get involved again, or like, what, what's your view? Yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, we're discussing it controversially in the team, right? And probably most of our listeners will 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 kill me now. But I'm I'm a big um, I have become a big skeptic. I, I would say just because it's if you look at it in a broader sense, of course. I mean, there were a couple of of bear and bull runs um, since 2017, 2018, and Definitely, it has somewhat become mainstream, at least on the investing side. But I think what I'm a little bit disappointed um, dis disappointed with is that basically we're speaking about the exact same use cases and theoretical use cases that we've been speaking about in 2017. And apart from, from NFTs, collectibles and, and gaming, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of real world use cases being solved and again if i just look at it from a from an economical perspective i think if you compare the capital currently in the market and uh, being thrown at the market from traditional players but probably more importantly from people and, and funds that got rich with crypto and have tons of liquidity i just think for for us um, from a venture perspective probably um, the proportion of real world use cases and problems being solved uh, in relation to the capital that is flowing in is maybe not the best but um, yeah please uh, please please don't stop listening um, <laughs> there will be more positive takes on, on technology exactly, exactly, exactly. for sure it, it probably has to become its own separate crypto contrarian podcast episode I'll note that down for the next one um, more probably a sector that we are more clearly aligned with a very positive view at the moment is all things data, um, which of course has 
also a strong heritage with here at the, at the Project A organization, at the operational team as well. But give us a little bit of the lay of the land. Why do you think that is an interesting, or like how exactly would you define that investment field and why you think it's an interesting one? Data, yeah, I mean, it's a, a very broad term, right? But like if if we at least are speaking about, about data startups, data companies, I'm mostly speaking about really kind of core data infrastructure and, and tooling that you would use to build up a data stack, data engineering tools. Um, of course, there's also tons of interesting companies on basically the uh, application side that just, uh, yeah, that use data in a specific vertical or, or horizontally. Um, but yeah, if, if we're now speaking about um, data companies, I would really speak about those building, um, yeah, the, the fundamental uh, building blocks and, and tools to, uh, to you to, to build yeah, high-performance um, data systems. And I think, I mean, if you look at it from a broader, you know, narrative uh, and, and broader perspective, I think um, if, yeah, Mark Andreessen um, said basically 10 years ago, right, that every company will um, become a software company. And I think we have, yeah, quite impressively seen since then that this is really somewhat true and you see the um, even yeah for very traditional large industrial enterprises right they like the core competencies um, are moved towards um, software more and more and and corresponding margins as well and yeah i mean we're also not the only investor or people on earth claiming that but i think that you could really see that the, the a very similar thing will, will happen uh, will happen in the data space so Successful companies will be those uh, companies that um, use data um, to personalize products, to differentiate on the product side in a world where there is more and more intense competition um, for customers, but also um, yeah, just operate at, 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 better, at better margins and, and, and drive operation excellency. And I mean, yeah, to maybe make, make that a bit more uh, concrete, if you look at uh, if you look at platforms like TikTok, for example, I mean, that is really, I think, how they pulled off to become the fastest company to ever reach that scale. And that is by designing the product in the first place in a way that they get very granular and, and good input for um, basically their yeah, machine learning recommendations algorithm. And I mean, we've also seen it with companies like Netflix, Amazon, Google, Uber, right? Like they all made data insights um, core of their company and core of their product. And I still think we are basically in the beginning of, um, of that era. And a lot of, especially smaller companies or larger, older companies don't actually have the necessary tooling to leverage uh, these, these data insights at scale. And I think that's what's very exciting for us from an investor standpoint, right? So there seems to be a lot of this internal tooling and, and heavy lifting being done yeah, at companies um, that, that that are already at, at the stage, but uh, we will uh, if this will happen in a for a broader economy. Like there definitely is a lot of tooling missing um, yet. Because because you mentioned, um, I, I want to you know uh, connect on two points that you made. And one being when you were talked about crypto, that you know the actual end consumer benefit is often not that visible. And the second aspect that we are about to enter, you know, this phase, this early era of, you know, data skill within large companies or small companies for that matter. And my question kind of is, how will that feel to consumers, to end users? Because at the end of the day, somehow they will need to feel this. 
Uh, you mentioned TikTok example, where probably people feel like, oh, wow, they, they kind of get what I think is funny uh, in one way or another. How do you envision to play this out? Will everybody just get gradually better or will there be like eureka moments for consumers? Oh, wow, now I get how awesome, good data skills on a company's side can be also for me as a consumer. Of course, we could now go into a more philosophical discussion about what is utility for a customer. Um, how does it really feel? I mean, um, yeah, but, but I think one large field uh, where it will definitely impact um, consumers very tangibly is exactly in this kind of um, personalization and, and kind of recommendation area where, I mean, so far, most digital products aren't really customized to yourself, right? I mean, of course, there is um, on Netflix, for example, what there is a banner, what do your friends watch or what basically fits your profile best. But I think, um, yeah, we will see much more highly contextualized um, experiences with digital products that exactly know who you are, what your preferences are. And I mean, of course, it also has... Or one should also ask the question if um, if if all of that is negative, but um, if everything of that is positive. But I do think that um, overwhelmingly majority of the impact is in, indeed positive. And of course, we that we we clearly need to um, see how that all that personal data is being used. But in general, I think tailoring something to your expectations and to your preferences as a as a consumer, um, yeah, is, is definitely highly relevant and also overall does good we we, yeah, we just should be careful at the same time so hyper personalization um yeah definitely being one of the more tangible ones i mean there's a lot um, i guess also happening on the b2b side and um, um kind of in, in internally um at larger companies but i think that's probably the most um yeah tangible one for customers in, in that field you know do, do you have any main convictions any search patterns any hypotheses that, that you'd like to share like what specifically excites you anything that a company has to have and characteristics to to make it on your radar yeah i mean i think in general across across the stack we, we will see a lot of innovation but i mean if you look at it from a timing perspective right i mean first thing that happened was basically okay we need to get data in a central place right from the edges we need to collect it somewhere so there was the age of a lot of um, kind of integration plays um, and connectors uh, we now have these big cloud data warehouses that can and data lakes that can just store an enormous amount of uh, of data and that has led to a situation where we have more more databases, more tables, more pipelines uh, than ever. And I think, um, yeah, two specific areas are, are, are really interesting there. And one of them is basically making that accessible throughout the organization for, for any team. I think we are seeing more and more that um, the use of, of data um, goes much beyond the, the core data team. And I think um, that's obviously also a big organizational challenge, how do you empower um, any team, any product, marketing team, whatever, to use that data for their own um, for their own operational uh, uh, jobs? And I think um, we'll see we'll see a lot of um, a lot of that in the broader metadata management, um, data governance, um, exploration, quality observability. I mean, I'm throwing around a lot of concepts. We should probably dive into that in a in a longer session. But I think that whole 
kind of data management aspect um, is definitely something where we see a lot of uh, a lot of innovation. Um, yeah, and of course, also just the the, the skyrocketing um, amounts of data constantly um, are, are looking for new paradigms to process that more efficiently. And I mean, I think it's uh, yeah, it, it's also public by now, right? I mean, we we invested in uh, Quicks, that's also really cool um, stream processing platform. I think that specifically, you know, that switch from batch processes to stream processes, um, just to get um, kind of more low latency, low cost um, uh, d yeah, data uh, pipelining alternative. I think that is something um, that's particularly interesting from an investor perspective. You wrote a piece the other day, which we're also going to link here in the show notes about open source software and how open source software can be uh, very interesting also for you know capitalistic investors uh, like ourselves and others. What role does open source play in those fields that you just described in your investment activity? Yeah, I think it's it's quite crucial. I mean, I don't want to speak too much about what, what I've also written there, right? But like this switch from being a non-investable category to basically being one of the hottest within within B2B and, and enterprise software. I think um, that's quite interesting. And I mean, it's not applicable across the entire stack, right? So basically the lower, the lower you are in a stack, the more I think inclined as a um, kind of an open be yeah, having an open source distribution or yeah a business strategy but i definitely think we'll still see a lot of uh, a lot of closed source companies that are already now fairly large and established actually just being overtaken um, by their uh, open source counterparts yeah i mean it's just in a way also great to see you know um the low barriers of entry and the, the power of, of the masses and of a community um, that, yeah, how that can materialize. I mean, I always love the um, analogy also to Wikipedia and um, you probably also had um, in your in your German home a um, Brockhaus or something like an, you know, and Enzyklop, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you are covering pretty much all of Europe and obviously, you know, that's 10 years ago. So we would have probably have said that all big tech companies, like 15 years ago, all big tech companies have to have like either be founded in the US, move to Silicon Valley, um, or at some point at least get like big US customer exposure, of course. Like how, how has Europe's role and Europe as a base for those companies evolved? Do you have any observations on that? I mean, I think... It's definitely still, I mean, also for us, right? I mean, the U.S. is still probably the most uh, important market for any kind of B2B software company. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we have seen um, that it's much, it has become much easier for European companies to establish a presence in the U.S. also just to sell to U.S. customers um, from abroad. And I mean, as you also know, um, of course, this bit of a valuation arbitrage between the U.S. and Europe um, has led to a lot of U.S. investors coming to Europe. But I think the first and, and initial um, great observation is that you can actually build category-defining, um, yeah, also developer software companies in Europe, um, out of Europe, um, and that you know, it's a strong it's a strong home base. And of course, the U.S. is yeah very important market there. But um, yeah, I think just selling and fundraising globally via Zoom has really accelerated. Uh, that again and that is very good news for the european ecosystem and yeah i mean it's also just a lot more technical juicy deep uh, 
topics in Europe that we're seeing compared to um, probably back in the days when when we first or you first started um, the, the company. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's been quite interesting and quite encouraging, I think, to see that, you know, we're not only tackling e-commerce front-end plays anymore, but um, also tougher challenges, if you will, in all kinds of fields, including the inner workings of the tech stack that powers all of those players in, in the future. So for sure, that makes a lot of sense. And you specifically also have a bit of a knack for Central and Eastern Europe. Can you can you comment a little bit on that? Like, how did that happen? What do you observe there? Yeah, I mean, I think it fits quite nicely. Um, also, you know, the, the, the topics that, that I like to look at, I think there is probably barely any region um, if you look at just the pure engineering talent and um, yeah, engineering students um, compared to the uh, so venture capital that is that is flowing into the region. There's probably not a lot of regions that are as underinvested as, as Central and Eastern Europe. And we have actually seen a lot of acceleration over the last uh, couple of years. I mean, obviously, UiPath already... A, a bit back um, being the, the, the very big uh, poster child from Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. But I think also just from a mentality perspective, you know, also the what we've seen in, in Germany that more, um, yeah, also technical founders and engineers are feel confident enough to start businesses and, and not only kind of as business guys. I think that is something that we have also been seeing a lot in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and of course, with also, uh, yeah, quite uh, relatively cheap um, engineering talent. There is uh, a lot of really cool companies are, are being built. Um, yeah, that, that we are quite excited about. Hmm. Uh, absolutely, and I guess those teams there are also benefiting, like everybody in Europe at the moment, from a crazy hot market. Probably started, or they, probably the, the good factors all were there before, but especially during the Corona times, where everybody went full on Zoom investing and so on. Everything seemed to have accelerated. Do you observe the same in, in your segment? How, how do you view the market? And maybe what would you recommend to founders and startups in such a hot market? How can they make best use of them uh, of, of that for them? Yeah, I mean, of course, I think we've witnessed it across the entire industry, but uh, especially, um, yeah, given that these B2B software infrastructure companies are global companies from day one and typically not not regional plays uh, at all. I mean, we've seen a ton of investor interest for, for that in Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, it, it basically poses the challenge for us, right, to cherry pick um, the really cool companies before it is too obvious, which I think is, um, yeah, is also my understanding of, of the job that, that, that we do. So I think it's a it's a cool challenge as well, right? And just seeing those companies more, more early on and, and developing conviction at a point where maybe, you know, you don't see um, an MRR curve of 5x year over year and um, great cohorts, etc. So I think um, it's overall very good news for, for the entire ecosystem. And yeah, I mean, I think it's also a good challenge for us European funds, right, to also um, show that in more competitive environments, uh, yeah, we can deliver great work. And, and basically, not only if we're the only um, kids on the on the block and um, see any remotely relevant company um, via inbound. And yeah, for founders, I think um, of course it is it is very good. But at the same time, I think it's a bit of a double edged edged sword as well. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think partnering up with an investor, you might end up yeah, sitting for, for more than 10 years on the same board. Um, so despite maybe sometimes, you know, 
it being very looking very attractive um, as a founder to just take um, take a high high paying check. Um, I think it's just something um, where I would still try not to rush the decision, also not to get rushed from investors into a decision, even if even if they're impatient. I think if yeah, if investors are impatient, um, it's the best sign for you and. If they really want uh, to get into this deal and they give you a deadline, they probably will extend that deadline if they really want to be in. So um, yeah. just staying confident, understanding the market and choosing wisely, I think, is, um, is quite a good approach. That is very true, unless, of course, it is a Project A deadline, which are always final, <laughs> but just kidding. I mean, that, that's typically not how we, we operate anyway. Um, but you're very good point. I, mean, I think it's a very interesting observation that um, it has always, already become like a uh, an achievement in itself for people to close their fundraising quick, right? So, oh, yeah. it only took six days and we never met those people. And now we took their money and we'll work with them every day for 10 years. It doesn't sound... It sounds impressive in a way, how somebody can trust you that quickly, how impressive you can be in such a short time to get all that uh, conviction done. Yeah. At the same time, I'm not really sure if you entirely understand what you're getting into. Yeah, we should, we should probably introduce the, the, con the, the conviction KPI, and that is just the ticket size relative to their fund size. I mean, yeah. I think that's something which is, which is overlooked, right? I mean, if I'm, I'm Tiger and investing out of a six billion fund doing a 10 million seed round in, in Europe um, probably shows as much conviction um, uh, yeah as if like relative to our fund size as if we invest I don't know 50k or 100k exactly um, so I think that's something to be aware of of course it depends on the founders right I mean if you're basically dead sure this is how you're going to do it um, you don't want to have anyone on the cap table just being um, trying to be helpful, <laughs> to use that uh, to use that phrase, um, then I think it, it, it's something really good. But it totally depends on also what type of founder you are, how experienced, and, and what is the working mode that you want to have with your investor. I mean, at least um, yeah, I think we always try to be uh, to have a, a quite close exchange and just offer um, help and advice if if needed, and then. Typically, it's helpful to um, also run a bit of a process where you get to know each other, but obviously um, respect any founder that, that basically says, hey, I, I just need the money. I don't need anything else. I'm, I'm pulling this off. And then probably one of the big multi-stage hedge funds is a pretty good um, alternative then. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Leo. This was uh, almost half an hour packed with uh, with insights. Um, so we will we'll try to keep it short. It seems like we should definitely schedule for some follow-on sessions on your controversial crypto take, more deep dive into data, maybe more zoom in on DevOps and infrastructure and other things as well. Um, thank you so much, Leo. Um, we'll share your contact details also under this podcast recording, as well as the link to your open source posting, your open source piece. And um, I'm sure it's fair to say that all founders in those fields that you just mentioned uh, should definitely feel welcome to get in touch with you. Yeah, thanks, Uwe. Thanks for uh, doing this. I think it was, it was great fun. Uh, looking forward to yeah, diving a bit deeper into these areas in the next session. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.